Welcome to Living Hope Podcasts. If you want to learn more about Living Hope and our ministries, you can find us online at livinghopecrc.ca. We hope you appreciate today's message. Uh, At this point, I want you to take out your Bibles, the Pew Bibles in front of you, and turn to John chapter 13. So last week, we looked at John chapter 12, and we mentioned that this is a big turning point in the Gospel of John. Uh, This is a point where Jesus moves from his public ministry, uh, a time where he is talking to Samaritans, Jewish leaders, and the people up in Galilee and Jerusalem. And now, chapter 13 is the point where Jesus changes his direction. Oh, it's pointing in this way. And that change in direction is signifying Jesus turning to his disciples and equipping them for what is ahead. We see that we should be leaning in with expectation at this point, because now Jesus is addressing directly his followers as living hope, as his church, as people who are his disciples. We should have anticipation in looking, what is Jesus going to say to his followers? How does he prepare them for this movement towards the cross? How does he prepare them for this mission to the world? Now, as we lean in, as we prepare ourselves for the reading of John chapter 13, let's come before God in prayer. Lord Christ, by remaining faithful till death, you showed us the road to greater love. By taking the burden of sin upon yourself, you reveal to us the way of generosity. By praying for those who crucified you, you lead us to forgive without counting the cost. By opening paradise to the repentant thief, you awaken hope in us. Come and help our faith that we may believe. Create a pure heart in us. Renew and strengthen us as we hear your word. Amen. John 13, verses 1 through 7, in the recent um, edition of the NIV. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin, and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part 
with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew he was, who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, This past week, in uh, part of our classes gatherings, the gatherings of the the local churches in the CRC, I attended a three-hour training session called The Power to Do Good. It was a presentation to bring greater awareness to abuses of power that can happen in the church, including within our denomination. This training was mandated in the CRC to help equip us to see where power is and how it can cause massive damage. And it was encouraging to see this topic being discussed in our churches and amongst our leadership. Maybe I hear these things more than most because I work at a church, but news reports will often come my way that show the bullying, the spiritual, emotional, physical abuses that take place in churches. And I want you to know that this is something that we talk about. This is important because of the broad impact that abuse of power can have in the church. I just want to read a a small quote from a poem written by Marion Lovelace. Um, She's writing about her experience in the Catholic Church, and this is coming from a report uh, that the CRC did back in 2018 on abuse of power. She says of her experience, you stole my unquestioned belief in my heavenly Father's love. You stole the preciousness of solitude in God's presence. You stole the joy of coming together to share the Eucharist. You stole the reverence for the deep meaning of a church family. You stole my ability to be quiet and hear God's voice. You stole my belief in the phrase, God answers prayers. You stole the joy I felt in calling myself Christian. This this poem, this piece that she had written was there to point out that when power is wielded selfishly, when it is used thoughtlessly, when it does not take into account those around them, It can do unmeasurable damage. In this person's telling, 
It went beyond the hurt and the internal need for healing from just a purely individual perspective, and it captures how power wielded improperly damages connections to entire communities. It causes one to question one's faith. It damages communion itself, communion with God, communion with others. This person no longer feels access to God's presence, no longer feels the presence of the church family that they can trust, no longer has joy in seeing themselves as Christian. It's the all too common experience of a person whose relational and spiritual well-being is in turmoil because of what was done to them. It raises the question then of how then do we respond what do we do when we talk about abuses of power? Well, if we're listening to the voices in our culture, a common reaction is try to do away with power itself. We try to relieve ourselves of power because then if we don't have the power, then we can't do that kind of damage. Power itself can be demonized as the problem. It can become a competition then to see how powerless we can be. But that's not where the report goes when it talks about this. The report turns towards biblical examples of how we are to live. If we are to take our cues from Scripture and not from culture, we see that power is something that is meant for the service of others. In fact, it turns towards Jesus. It turns towards passages like John chapter 13. He says, in contrast to these stories, Jesus' ministry is a positive model for exercising power. The full power of God is available to him. But instead of manipulating events for his own benefit, instead of selfishly grabbing for things himself, Jesus uses power to bring life for others, for individuals and of the world. And we reflected on this a little bit last week already. If you were here, we, we talked about how Jesus being lifted on the cross was a manifestation of glory itself. It was not the setting aside of who he was. Jesus, as God and as human, was on the cross not as a powerless victim, but as someone who is decisively showing that God is the one who gives himself, that God is the one who expresses his love in this self-giving way. And while we could explore this theme throughout John or the other Gospels, we could look at the different cases in John 1 through 12 of how every time Jesus brings healing, it brings restoration to community and back towards God as well. I think focusing in on John 13 gives us the most clear picture of what this looks like. John 13 shapes us in thinking of what it means to be people who have power. And by the way, uh, we in the church are famous for not recognizing the power we have. And, and one, one of the excuses or one of the reasons why this is, is kind of this false dichotomy that we have. We kind of see power on this spectrum, and we think that we can choose one or the other. Oh, man. 
I've practiced this and they look a lot better. Um, but this person is grabbing onto service and uh, the visual here is to signify that sometimes we think that when we are serving, when we're choosing to sacrifice, say like um, pastors are famous for trying to work more than the kind of allotted hours that they have. They see that as a sacrifice of their time. They're, they're serving and then they don't see the power that they hold in the midst of that. Or you can see this with, with elders or, or deacons. They're, they're serving in their leadership and they can kind of buy into this idea that in the service, we're kind of letting go of power. We're choosing one or the other. But looking at Jesus, looking at how our passage unfolds, that's simply not the case. We see this person who is holding on to both of them, that both power and service are held together. The person in power expresses that rightly in the service of others. Now, to get a sense of, of kind of the, the power that Jesus has in here, I actually want to take a step back and look at John chapter 12 to see what, what's the context. How is Jesus being perceived at this moment? John chapter 12, especially verses 13 through 16, we have Jesus coming into Jerusalem. And as he rides into Jerusalem, he is being hailed as a king this very powerful figure, they're waving palm branches on his arrival. Now this, this being hailed as king and having palm branches, this might not uh, stir up in our memories that much, uh, but for the people in Israel at this time, this would have called back several things. One of them would have been that 200 years before, someone named Judah Maccabees, he led this rebellion against the 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 people in power over Jerusalem kind of rescued Israel and regained control of Jerusalem. And as he came into Jerusalem, they waved palm branches upon his arrival. This was a sign of rebellion, a sign of victory. When they minted coins, they put palm branches as signals on these coins to show we are independent, we have victory over all of this, and now Jesus here is being welcomed back into Jerusalem as a king, and they wave palm branches, symbols of victory. And Jesus continues forward. He doesn't correct them in the midst of this. He doesn't say, I'm not that kind of king, at least not in words. But he does communicate something through his actions in this passage. Looking at verse 14, we see it is only after they hail him as king that Jesus goes and finds a donkey. It's as though Jesus recognizes the symbolic act of coming into the city as king, but he needs this counter symbol. And knowing that kings would go and, uh, as victory, they would ride into the city on a horse, uh, whereas going on a donkey would signify peace. Jesus' mode of transport is meant to flip things upside down. They welcome him as a king who will overthrow Rome by force, but he accepts their praise, but declares that the victory will be one of peace. Now, throughout John, we see that Jesus has highly symbolic actions in here. He chooses the time and the place of things very specifically. Jesus 
has intentionality. He's doing these things with precision. His actions are more than just symbolic, though. They tell about who God is. What does it look like to see the glory of God? And our passage here is no different. Jesus, rather than leaving it to some sort of wordy teaching in John 13, he chooses to display what he means. He lives it out first, and then he will describe it to his followers. Now, in this passage, even though he is making this strong symbolic action, not everyone catches on, and his disciples didn't even understand this. All they saw was Jesus being welcomed as king. The disciples are kind of gathered in this room. The setting for this time is one of excitement. Jesus is finally going to lead this revolution. Uh, Luke chapter 22 gives us a bit of a window into what the disciples' conversations are like. Luke 22 describes the, the, the disciples arguing over who is going to be greatest in this new kingdom. They're thinking, finally, we're going to get the power that we deserve. We've been sitting amongst this teacher for so long, this, this Messiah. His reign, his rule is going to come. The welcome of Jesus as king has them dreaming of the grand power that is going to be coming their way. That's the context for what happens next. Now, as they're reclining in their meal, Jesus takes off his outer layers of clothing and washes their feet. Several sources that I've looked at say that this removal of the outer layers of clothing uh, gives us a picture that Jesus is wearing nothing but a loincloth here, taking on the clothing of a lowly slave. And, and I mention that because our, our culture doesn't really have that much as far as taboo regarding our actions, the things that we do. Um, we don't really have a hierarchy where someone in charge can kind of do the different things, different tasks. There's no kind of low tasks that we just avoid but we still do have some taboo around clothing. So as shocking as it might be to picture Jesus willfully stripping down to a loincloth, we can think of it doubly offensive to the ancient Jewish culture and mindset what Jesus is about to do here. He will actually wash his disciples' feet. The Messiah, the King, the Son of God, against all expectations, shows what it means to be king. He rewrites the definition of leadership here. He flips people's understandings of power upside down. This sort of action is one that throws everything off kilter. He threatens to destabilize society itself in this one swift action. And to be insistent here, in this action... Jesus was not setting aside his divinity. He was showing what it means. Jesus is reframing who God is. God has always been seen simply in terms of being omnipotent, kind of this dominant force. And now God is doing something new. God is assuming the condition of a slave. This was not a lowering of his dignity, though, but a manifestation of his love. 
And that insight, just by the way, is straight from a preacher that lived 1,600 years ago. This, this stuff isn't new. These insights aren't unique. These are things that when encountering this passage, people have been observing for hundreds of years. For centuries, Christians have read this and noted that Jesus is doing something shocking here, disgraceful even. He's cutting against the cultural norms. Friends didn't even do these things, let alone a master, let alone the king, let alone the creator of the universe. Looking at the wording of our passage, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. We see that he is one who has all the power here, so he gets up from the meal and does that. John connects Jesus' power, God putting all things under control, directly to this act of service. He's pointing out that this is what it means to have fullness in power. It means girding this towel, taking the basin, doing the work of a servant. Now, the past two weeks, I've had this line kind of echoing in my mind. This line is, if this is what it looks like to be God, can being human be anything less? If this is what it looks like to be God, can being human mean anything less? It's a line, it's a question that points out that sometimes we hesitate to serve others in such a way. We think of ourselves too high of a position to do something. I'll only serve in a particular way if I want to. I'll serve in a way that suits my dignity, my age, my experience, my financial well-being. Whatever hierarchy you think that you are on, wherever you think you are, where you measure up against others, this story ought to shatter our expectations. Jesus, the one who is God and human, takes on the actions of a slave and serves his disciples. We should not settle for less, thinking something is beneath us after reading this story. Jesus is reconfiguring what power looks like. Power isn't set aside here. As the one who holds power, Jesus chooses to use that in the service of others. And he gives that pattern to his disciples. This becomes abundantly clear later on where Jesus asks them, do you understand what I've done for you? Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. Now, Jesus setting an example here isn't just saying that, that we should just go out and only wash each other's feet. Jesus is setting an example by setting a precedent. Do as I have done for you in finding ways of serving one another. 
Jesus is giving a pattern for his disciples to follow, his followers. This, this section here, knowing that this is the hinge point in John, this is the first teaching that Jesus gives in preparation for the cross, in preparation for their mission to follow, Jesus chooses this time to say, this is what it looks like to be my followers. You must serve one another. You must wash one another's feet. If you are going to have power, you're going to use it for others. This is forever reframed what it means to be in a position of power, especially in the church. The person in power is one who is there to serve. Whether a pastor or an elder or a deacon or any space of leadership in the church, this is something that we aspire towards. Leadership is an opportunity to follow the example that Jesus set. It is a way of following Jesus' words, you should wash one another's feet. We even have a code of conduct in place for our leaders that's built around Jesus' posture of a servant. Uh, this code of conduct begins in quoting Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2 gives a great explanation. It's a great counter to um, John chapter 13. Philippians 2 says this, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. As, as we relate with each other, as we grow in relationship, we are to think in the same way that Jesus thought. We are to act in the same way that he does. Jesus, being the very nature God, doesn't consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Looking at this, you can see equality with God is not something to be used to his own advantage, that the place of power that he has isn't used for selfish gain, but it is the prelude, it is what comes before this acting of a servant. This equality with God is manifested, it is shown, it is most clear in Jesus acting on behalf of others. Philippians 2 is a retelling of John chapter 13 in a way. It is saying that our God doesn't use power for personal gain, but that he works, kind of leverages that power for others. And this is what it means to be a people of humility. Sometimes we misdiagnose humility, that the humble person is the one that can simply just get walked over because they set aside any authority or any power they might have. Likewise, sometimes we see abuses of power in the church, and the temptation can be simply to empty ourselves of power, as though power itself were the problem. But our goal is not to be a people who are powerless, but to be those who use our power for the benefit of others. There's a report earlier that, that I was referencing as we began, as it points out 
The church has all too often gotten this wrong, and we need to turn to the example of Jesus who shows humility. Humility uses power to serve others. Now, to be clear, um, anything that we do here, any of this service, isn't something that we do coming from our own strength. Any action that we do is always a response to the cleansing that we receive in Jesus. And to understand this, we need to go to the middle of our passage, where Peter wants nothing to do with Jesus serving him. His words are honest. He says, you shall never wash my feet. Peter is trying to protect the king's dignity by refusing the offer. He's saying, you might be able to wash others, but to wash my feet, that's, that's beneath you. Peter is speaking the words that we might say in our own confusion, thinking that we can spare God the indignity of washing us clean, that we aren't worthy of such a thing. But to say this is to confuse the very act, the very nature of the act that Jesus is doing here. This isn't beneath God, but this is the very expression of God's love. When we refuse being cleaned by Jesus, we are refusing his love. We are refusing communion with him. Jesus is saying, this this is not an embarrassment. This isn't some sort of optional lesson here. This is a fundamental posture that any believer needs. His response is, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. Unless I forgive your sins, unless you accept the depths that I will go to serve you, you will have no part in me. Jesus lets Peter know, and at the same time, lets every person, every disciple know that you can't find this washing on your own. It requires Jesus taking the form of a servant. We need to receive Jesus' ultimate sacrifice in order to have life. As we read on, though, we find that Peter, in this short passage, goes from one extreme to another. In seeing the need for this washing, he just wants more of it. If some is good, then more must be better. He falls prey to what at least one theologian calls moreism. Moreism, as the title implies, is all about just wanting more. The tendency in humanity to simply want more, to demand, um, it's, it's not to understand that Jesus' gift is complete in itself, but it treats it like anything else in the world, something that you can accumulate, something where if you have more of it, it is better. Morism is not content with a long obedience in the same direction type living, but it wants to see faith in terms of just radical changes. Morism doesn't see how God can be at work in the ordinary, day-to-day serving in community. 
but needs to be on the cutting edge to be able to see God at work. Moreism demands that God grant health and wealth, demands that we only see God on our own terms rather than how God is showing up right in front of him. In Peter's case, the problem isn't that he wants the wrong thing, it's that he doesn't understand the nature of what's being offered here. You can't boil this down to an economy of morism. What's wrong is that he doesn't see that Jesus' cleansing is enough. You don't need any more of it. Peter might sound a little bit silly in this passage, but I think sometimes we can kind of act the same. We can deny the work that is already done in us. We can try to require that God do something bigger, something better, something more, because we cannot see how God is working in our ordinariness. We don't see how God can be working in us in our simple acts of service. It's not about getting more. It's about simply receiving Jesus. It is about humbling yourself and realizing that you need the king of the universe to serve you. There's no other way to cleansing. There's no other way to salvation. The question that this passage leaves us with is, will you be like Peter in the beginning of this passage, refusing to see the work of God and what is lowly? Or will you give in? Will you be washed, accepting that the washing that Jesus offers is enough? As washed people, we have an example set before us. We are to serve in the pattern of Jesus, to take whatever power we have and then use it for others. I'll finish with the words that our passage finishes with, that Jesus uses to encourage his disciples. Jesus says, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So let's take this beatitude and be blessed as we serve one another, doing as Jesus calls us acting out in service, washing one another's feet. Let's pray. Lord, may we be like Peter who accepted your cleansing. When our pride gets in the way, when we think that we can do it on our own, or we wish this washing looked different, bigger, more magnificent, remind us of who you are. When we wish that you were in our image, that your power mirrored the way that we often want to wield power, may we recall Jesus and his sacrifice, how in submitting himself to death on a cross, he defeated death that we may have life. We marvel, too, at the example he set. May we see what it is to serve. Equip us to be servers in the church, whether on council or in the nursery, 
with gems or cadets or the women's Bible study, the media booth, wherever we serve, may we do so with the same posture that you call us to as disciples washing another's feet. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged in the message and through the work of the Spirit. Once again, if you want to learn more about Living Hope, you can find us online at livinghopecrc.ca.